The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. Let's pray together. So, Father, it's true that no one can stand in the way of King Jesus. And so I do pray in this moment through your word and by your spirit that you would run us over with grace. Would you run us over with grace that convicts and grace that restores, grace that comforts. Father, we need your grace through your word, by your spirit, to see the beauty and supremacy of your son. So please come now and reign in our hearts, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this is an interesting passage. As you just heard, there's a few twists and turns we'll take together this morning. Uh, Peter is still in this section, though, where he's calling us to fill the places where God has placed us with beautiful behavior that shows the beauty of King Jesus. That's still the point from chapter 2, verse 11, to chapter 4, verse 11. And one of the challenges for Peter's readers and for us is the losses that they would have been feeling in this moment. Losses of friends and family and even safety would have been things they were facing. It is hard to radiate the beauty of Jesus Christ when our souls are full of unrest because it feels like we're losing all around and nothing is certain. And we've all felt that. We've all felt losses these last few months. Some of us, it's just a loss of routines. Just don't quite know what's up and what's down because our routines are off. Perhaps the loss of health or loved ones. Perhaps the loss of jobs. Some of you have lost jobs, then gotten jobs, then lost jobs. Some of you are losing the fight against sin. Some of you have fallen into shame and despair because you're losing the fight against sin as your circumstances have changed. Some of you are losing your endurance and your perseverance. I'm just hearing all the more now, even the last few weeks, the, the weariness that's setting in. Perhaps you've lost hope in this hard situation or you've lost close relationships or you've lost interactions with friends and families and oftentimes when we feel losses it makes our souls full of unrest and turbulence. Like you're always exhausted but your mind is always running at 100 miles an hour. Does anyone feel like that right now as you try to take in information and figure out where is the rest for my soul? And Peter means to prepare this church and us in the midst of circumstances that are harder than even we're facing now to suffer as exiles who are not yet home and to spread the beauty of Christ. And so in this moment, it's important that we realize the mission of Christ is not on hold. <laughs> the mission of the, the church is not on hold. We are still called to spread the beauty of Christ in the places God has called us. He's just called us to a strange place right now. Bruce showed us last week so well 
that what Peter is calling these Christians to in the midst of upcoming persecution is gentleness towards others and like we've seen throughout this book, a trembling before God. Gentleness towards others and a trembling before God. In other words, how can they spread this beauty in the midst of their uncertainty? Set apart Jesus as Lord in their hearts. Be submitted to him, ready to obey him, ready to return blessing for cursing because they know the commands of Christ are meant to lead us into the life of Christ. In other words, the commands of Christ and the joy of Christ are not opposites in 1 Peter. The commands of Christ are meant to lead us into the joy of Christ, even when it means blessing those who curse you. It would have been tempting to avoid or assimilate or become aggressive. And Peter has repeatedly called them to engage with courageous humility flowing from hope in Jesus Christ. And that's what he's calling us to. Our text today, the strange twist that it takes, is actually pretty clear in what Peter wants to do. What he wants to do is show these believers and therefore us the example of Christ and the victory of Christ. In other words, it's meant to remind them and us that Christ suffered unjustly and we can follow in his footsteps. And it's meant to remind them and us that their souls can be at rest with an uncertain future because ultimate victory is already secured. Even in the world around them with all these circumstances he's walked us through feel so unsettled, so unsure. Peter would say, nothing is unsure. Nothing is unsure ultimately for the Christian. You don't need to worry about your final outcome. So I hope by the end of this text today, you'll feel fresh confidence and rest filling your soul. So let's, let's dive in. Point number one the atonement of Christ. And when I looked at this passage at the beginning of the week, I hope you'll share in my joy at the alliteration I was able to come up with. That felt like a, a big win after all the twists and turns. So let me, let me help us situate these strange five verses in our book. Remember with me the last words before these verses and then the first words that will come after these verses. So look at chapter three, verse 17. It says, for it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. So that comes right before this text. What comes right after this text? Chapter four, verse one. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So our text today is crunched between those two texts calling believers to suffer and therefore what our text is meant to do between those two texts is to be fuel for believers to endure uncertain futures and uncertain suffering by refreshing their souls in the suffering and victory of Jesus Christ as their example and their hope. In other words, he's saying, be ready to suffer, be ready to suffer in between those two. I'm gonna tell you why you can be ready. What is the fuel for your hope? And the fuel is Jesus Christ has done this. You can follow him by his spirit. Jesus Christ has done this, you have ultimate victory. So look at verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, in order that he might bring us to God. This is the best news in the whole world. 
We should not pass over this too quickly. This is the best news in the whole world. Where do we look for our example of righteous suffering? Like, have you been hearing these sermons going, yeah, Dave, but no one was more righteous than Jesus. He never sinned. He never deserved scoffing. He never deserved any of it. Yet he kept humbly ministering in the strength that God supplied. Here is our example for righteous suffering. Where do we look for our hope? Here, because in our failures to do what Christ has done, he has paid for our sins. Where do we look for rest for our souls? Here, he's brought us to God. The God-man, Jesus Christ, suffered once for all for sins. So maybe you're here this morning, and you would never say this out loud, but you just feel kind of out of reach of God's love because of your sin. Look to Christ. The sacrifice has been made once for all. That's the gospel. That's the good news. Do you believe that it's a once for all sacrifice? Or do you feel like you need kind of a booster shot of saving grace? Or maybe you feel like you're just too unrighteous and you've gone too far for that sacrifice. He was perfectly righteous. He lived the life you could never live. And if you trust him, you're clothed in his righteousness. He took your place. In other words, what this text teaches is that God cannot be punishing you or turning away from you because of your sin if you trust in Jesus. Why? Because he punished Jesus on your behalf. He turned away from Jesus that he'd never have to turn away from you. And the question is, do we actually believe this in the moment by moment of our lives? Or are you trying to pull yourself up by your bootstraps from that sin you committed on Tuesday so by Sunday you can get here and you can sing loud like you mean it? The mark of maturity in the life of the Christian is not you never sin. The mark is that when you sin, you run to Jesus. You run back to him quickly because you believe this to the core of your being. And why did Jesus come? He came to bring us to God. If you settle for anything less than that in the gospel, you will not find rest for your souls. We were created to be in fellowship with God, whether we know it or not. And Jesus brings us to God. Therefore, our souls can be at rest eternally in Christ with God. That's the good news of the gospel. We were born into sin. Our relationship with the God of the universe was broken, but Christ came. And he became a curse for us. And in him, and by faith in him, we are brought to God and he becomes our father. We're transferred from the kingdom of darkness and brought into the blood-bought family of God. This is the good news that outweighs all the other unsettling news we see. I hope you think of and read about and meditate on this news as much as you do the current news cycle. So this is, this is good news. We get God. We are his. He is ours, bought with the precious blood of Christ. Meditate on this. Set your minds on this. The ultimate good news of the gospel is not a get out of hell free card. Good news as that is, is that we get God. The ultimate good news of the gospel is not just, well, no more suffering, no more tears. I praise God for that. But the ultimate good news, we get God. 
Do you love God enough? Is he stirring in your soul even now to say, the best news is I get God. I was separate from God and now I get God. Anything less will not settle your soul. Right? If, if the gospel is about no suffering, no tears, and that's all it's about, it's no use to you now. If the gospel is about, well, I don't have to go to hell, it's no use to you until you get there. But if the gospel is about getting God, and you have him now, it makes all the difference in the world today, in this moment. This is the main point of our text. So as we twist and turn, don't forget this main point. So here's the main point. Now Peter goes on in this verse to begin to unpack how this was accomplished. So he ends this verse by saying, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Jesus, the God-man, he took on flesh. Why did he take on flesh? So that he could die. He needed a body to die in, to die a criminal's death on a cross for our sins, but he was made alive in the spirit. And I think this is referring to his glorified spiritual body. Go read Philippians 3.20 or 1 Corinthians 15.43 if you want to see more about that body. He was raised in this glorified spiritual body so that he would never die again. The contrast here is a fleshly body and a spiritual resurrection body. The atonement is good news, but it gets better because Jesus didn't stay dead. If Jesus was still dead, we would still be those most to be pitied. But he's alive now in a new, spiritual, glorified body that will never die again. And therefore we have, like Peter said over and over again, a new, living, eternal hope. Because we know that not only did he pay for our sins, but he conquered death on our behalf. So the news just gets better and better this is what sustains believers in the worst of times. I can tell you from first-hand knowledge, this is what sustained Marlon Olson. He knew Christ had atoned for his sins, and he knew that Christ had conquered death. In the end, it's all that matters. In the end, this is all that matters. I can't tell you how many times my soul has been steadied by sitting in their living room and then walking back out into the chaos and going, this is what matters. Right here, Christ paid for my sins. Christ rose again. I have nothing to fear. This is the core of the gospel. He knew Christ atoned for his sins and conquered death. Family in Christ here at the South Campus. Peter doesn't mean to have us forget the troubles of this life. That's not what his book is filled with. Just forget the trouble of this life. Instead, he wants to remind us that they don't define us. They don't define our ultimate hope or existence. We belong to a victorious kingdom. Suffering is part of that kingdom now. But no loss on this earth defines us. The atonement of Christ for sins and the resurrection of Christ to conquer death defines us. We are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. Which means no matter what the devil or the world throws our way, no matter the suffering or uncertainty, no one can take our victory in Christ and we will be with God forever. That should settle your soul. 
And if it doesn't, just think about it for a while. (laughs) Just stop listening now to the weird stuff and think about it for a while. Just kidding, this stuff is good. Point number two, the announcement of Christ. So that's the main point. And now we get to the section where there are 180 different interpretations of this passage. I'm sure I have the right one. Uh, this, is, this is God's word. There's two ways to approach these passages, right? Just throw your hands up and go, what in, what in the world are we going to do about this? The other passage, the other way to go about it is, this is God's word. And he means for us to see beauty here. And I told Nick on Friday, I said, like on Monday I was going, oh no. <laughs> and on Friday I was going, this might be my favorite text in the whole Bible. So let's, let's dive in. Look at verses 19 and 20. It says, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. So I think what Peter is doing here, if we look back at verse 18, is he's contrasting death in the flesh life in this resurrected spiritual body. I think that's what he's doing. I think Peter is really giving this basic gospel story here. Death, resurrection, ascension, and his mind goes to some places ours wouldn't go in between. But, but here's, here's why that matters. I'm going to tell you two views I don't agree with quickly. And I just want you to know why I don't, and then we'll get to what in the world I think is going on here. View number one I don't agree with is that this is referring to Jesus going and preaching in hell between his death and resurrection. I think that's wrong because I think this says he's doing this in his resurrected spiritual body. Therefore, he can't be doing it in between death and resurrection. View number two I don't agree with, although I like it more than view number one, is that somehow Jesus went and preached through Noah... And this is referring to that. And again, I think that the text would lead us to see that this preaching happened after Jesus was made alive again. I think that's the contrast. So that's what I don't think. So now we have a few questions. Here are my questions. Here's what I want to get at to get at the main point of Peter here. Who are the spirits in prison? What do they have to do with Noah? And why does Peter care? So who are the spirits? What do they have to do with Noah? Why does Peter care? So let me give you my answers to those. Who are the spirits? Well, throughout the New Testament, the plural form of spirits in every single case except for one refers to demonic, angelic beings. And the one time it doesn't in Hebrews, it's very clearly put forward that it's not demonic beings. So that's a clue for us. Likely Jesus in his glorified body has a message for some demonic spirits. So let me read you a quick cross-reference that helps us begin to get in, I think, Peter's mind about what he's thinking. And it comes from Peter. That's helpful. Second Peter chapter 2, verses 4 to 5 says this, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world but preserved Noah a herald of righteousness with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. So the plural of spirits and this cross-reference from Peter about disobedient spirits, demonic angels, being kept in chains, followed again by another reference to Noah, tells me that we're on the right path to a glorified Christ preaching to disobedient demonic angels. 
So who, who are they? Who is Jesus talking to? Well, if you go to Genesis 6, uh, right before the story of Noah, and I'm not going to read the whole thing now, you get the story of Noah and the flood. That's what you all know Genesis 6, Genesis 6 for. But right before that, there's this story of these sons of God. And the, and the term sons of God is normally an Old Testament phrase for angels, sons of God. You can see that in Job, when all the, the court comes to God, the sons of God come to him. And what we see is that these sons of God, these angels, likely, were sinning by procreating with women on earth. It is a strange story. Um, but I think that's what's going on. They're sinning. They're condemned for that twice in the New Testament. Right after that story, God sees the complete wickedness of the earth and he decides to flood the whole thing. That's Genesis 6. So here's what I think is going on. Peter's looking at this and he's seeing this as an event, as a picture of the complete wickedness of the world, the flesh, and the devil. Men are evil in their hearts. Demonic forces are always working and it makes the world an evil place, hostile to God and all who trust him. And how does God respond in that story in Genesis 6? Well, Peter tells us. It says, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. So what, what's Peter teaching them about their moment? About their godliness and their faithfulness to Christ in the midst of an unjust, broken world? I think the first thing he's teaching them is that God patiently waited for a time while the ark was built. He was patient. He was ready to forgive. Yet only eight people trusted God and got in the ark. Those eight were saved. The rest of the humans were destroyed and await the day of judgment. And the wicked angels that were part of the evil happening were imprisoned and await the day of judgment. So this is our God. This is what we're supposed to see about God. This is what Peter wants these elect exiles in a crooked generation to see. God is patient with mankind in their sin. So patient. He provides a way of escape if we will trust his word. He will make a way to avoid judgment if we'll turn to him. Even today, if you're sitting here and you're going, I've never come to God, then this story has relevance for you. He will, he will give you a way of escape. He will save you through the waters of judgment if you'll turn to him and trust his word today. Yet this also has a word of warning. He will not excuse evil. Not from humans, not from fallen angels. He won't excuse any of it. And so when Jesus rises from the dead in his glorified body, it is a proclamation to these demonic forces that they've lost. Their purposes have been undone, right? We see in other places in the New Testament, he made them open shame, right? He's caused them open shame by his death and resurrection. Jesus has rose again and declared victory over sin and death and the devil and none of their plans can prosper because of the eternal purposes of God fulfilled in King Jesus. I think that's what's going on in 1 Peter 3. And then there's this little link kind of beyond all that stuff. In this reference, because of the next verse, that's also strange, we're also supposed to see that Jesus Christ 
is our ark. So we're supposed to see. By faith in Jesus, we're in him. And we escape the waters of judgment that crashed on Christ at the cross. He keeps us safe and will ultimately punish all those who mock or hurt us. It is worth it to follow Jesus, to trust him and follow him because that is where ultimate safety and ultimate joy are found. Even though it can often seem like the world and the flesh and the devil is winning, it simply isn't true and the resurrection of Christ declares that to the world once for all. This is not a movie or a TV show where you don't know who's going to win. Christ has proclaimed his victory once for all through his resurrection power. All right, check out the under 179 interpretations if you want to. I think that's what's going on. Look at verse 21. So as Peter's mind, this is point three, the appeal to Christ, as Peter's mind wanders to people being saved through the waters of judgment in this story of Noah, his mind is brought to the symbol that represents that in the Christian faith, which is baptism. So look at verse 21 with me. It says, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So Paul remembers the way God saved Noah and his family through the waters of judgment, and he, he sees a connection. And we've got, we got to keep the context in our mind, right? That he's writing to a group of people who, if they stand up and say, I'm with Jesus, they're in trouble. Persecution is coming. That's why the Noah story is so important. What was Noah? Mocked and made fun of and, and ridiculed, and yet he, he trusted God. And here's what Peter is saying. This is what you've done in baptism. Peter remembers the way God saved Noah and his family through the waters of judgment, and he sees a connection. Water in the Old Testament, so in Peter's readers' ears, is a huge symbol for judgment and chaos. That's why when we get to Revelation, it's a big deal in Revelation 21.1 when John says, Then I saw a new heaven and new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Right? Like, if you're like my wife, you probably don't like that verse at first. She's like, the ocean's gone? Like, that's our, that's our spot. Right? The Brunos are not going to like that verse. They're going to Hawaii. But that's not the point here. The, the, the Old Testament picture is, is chaos and judgment. So Revelation 21, there's good news. The sea is no more. No more chaos. No more judgment. And baptism is meant to represent, like Pastor Daniel often screams at us in the baptismal here, that our old man is buried with Jesus under the waters of judgment, and then we are raised up to new life with him. So then the question is, how does baptism save you, right? That doesn't sound good to us as Baptists. Is this teaching baptismal regeneration? And I think the answer is so clearly no. Peter is careful to say right away, not as a removal of filth from the flesh. I like that better than dirt from the body. Because when we think dirt from the body, we think taking a shower. And my kids were really dirty after a day outside yesterday. And they take a shower because they, they got to get clean before they get into their newly washed sheets. But that's not what's going on here. It's, it's a removal of filth from the flesh. In other words, baptism is not some kind of ritualistic cleansing that earns your moral purity before God. If you think of our flesh as contaminated and filthy, 
Baptism can't fix that. Well, then what is it? It's a crying out to God for a good conscience that is brought about by the resurrection of Christ. The word here for crying out has the idea of of making a pledge or sealing a legal contract and asking for help. In this moment of baptism, you're saying to God, I believe, I believe in the death and resurrection of Christ. You've saved me. I'm all in. You're my hope. I could never remove my own filth, but you've removed it for me. Here's my pledge and my plea for your help to follow you in all of my days. Keep me. Help me walk in new resurrection power by the resurrection life of Christ. That's what's going on. And then God answers that prayer. He keeps you. He keeps saving you. That's a category in the New Testament. He keeps doing that until the day you meet him face to face. So baptism is a pledge and a plea from the believer based on the finished work of Christ saying, I am saved by your finished work. Help me follow you. Keep helping me follow you. Why why would Peter bring it up now? In every culture, universally around the world, all nations have made baptism this moment of proclamation that they're all in to know Jesus. What's funny is it's the easiest thing to do here rather than anywhere else, and this is like the only place we view it as optional. This is the all-in moment. Say, I'm following Jesus. I'm willing to alienate myself from my friends and my family, and I'm pleading with Jesus to help me to keep me faithful for my uncertain future that I face. When you get baptized, you're putting on the jersey of Jesus and pledging to play on his team every moment of your life in front of your other teammates, saying, help me, Lord, help me, Christians, to walk faithfully, because I might lose everything else, so I need you in this with me. Peter wants them to remember that they've made this pledge and that God will be faithful to keep his promises and sustain them, because like Noah... They've trusted him. They're in Christ like Noah's in the ark and God will bring them through the waters of judgment to ultimate safety and will be sure to punish the unjust. So in many ways, all of our Christian lives are a living out of this pledge that we take in baptism. A living out of this pledge to spread the beauty of Jesus Christ wherever he's placed us by his resurrection power in the midst of uncertainty in a broken world. Point number four the ascension of Christ. Look at verse 22. He's gone into heaven. He's at the right hand of God. Angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So lest these believers wonder if their king is still on his throne and still in control, Peter leaves no doubt for these suffering believers. Jesus is in heaven at the right hand of God reigning and interceding for them and for us. Nothing is happening outside of his control, reigning over angels and authorities and powers. This is our king. Do you ever stop? I don't know if you're like you. I always call you to stop and meditate on things, but I, just, I know all this stuff, but I don't believe it sometimes. I don't think about it. So do you ever stop and meditate on the, the total control of Christ on his throne? I mean, over everything. If he stopped speaking, this room would stop being. Sustaining all things by the word of his power. He's in total control. 
And this one in total control paid the price for our sin, rose again, declared the victory over the demonic forces, saved us, and here's our pleas in the waters of baptism to sustain us. Here's our pleas from the throne of God where he reigns in complete control. This is meant to be for you as a Christian, for the church, a picture of your ultimate victory. Ultimate victory in Christ. Do you feel like the world is out of control right now? It kind of is, right, from one perspective. 2020 has been a ride, and it's not over. I remember back in January, I think it was an elder meeting or something, we were talking to a group of people and going, man, it's an election year, it's going to get crazy. Man, we would take that right now if that was all that was going on. So from one perspective, it is wildly out of control. But it's not out of our king's control. Not one second of it. That corner over there at those two chairs that I can see right now is being held together by Jesus. Easy to never think about them, but those two chairs held together by me. He stopped speaking, they stopped being. That's how in control he is. How have you made it this far through 2020? Because your king reigns and he's keeping you. That's how you've made it. The mission of Christ to save sinners and therefore the mission of the church has not stopped. He will build his church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. He will sustain his people. No one will snatch them out of his hand. He is still saving and sustaining and carrying his blood-bought family because he is reigning from his throne. No evil demonic force, no evil human beings, no horrible worldviews, no undoing of the morals of our country, no angry relationship breaking rant on social media, no amount of suffering or death can undo Jesus' plans and purposes. Do you believe that? Do you rest in that? So what's the application? I just want you to rest in his victory, which is our victory. So, so can I plead with you as your pastor in these coming days to gaze on Jesus Christ with me? That's why we're trying to have you memorize Romans 8. Jesus is there. That's why we're doing fasting Fridays. So I want you to forget about some of these other things and remember Jesus. Gaze on his atoning death that pays for your sin and covers your shame and brings you to God. Life is hard, but every day is a good day if that's you. Right? Every day, if that's true. Gaze on his resurrection from the dead that conquers death and means that we have a living hope and eternal life. Why is the world so shaken right now? Because it doesn't know what to hope in. There's no idea what to hope in. Do I hope in, it looks like he might lose. Do I hope in, oh, it looks like we're going to stay shut down. Do I hope in, oh, I don't like their policy on that. Don't have a flimsy hope. Have a living resurrection hope in Jesus Christ. Gaze on his victory over demonic forces that would seek to undo you and conquer his kingdom. The devil is at work overtime right now in our insecurity and anxiety and fear and Christ has conquered the devil. He won't have the last word. Gaze on his ascension to the right hand of God where he reigns with all power, totally in control. So here's how I wanna end. I want to end by looking at three promises from Jesus that show the connection between his total control and our rest of soul. Three promises right from his mouth that focus on his total control and our rest of soul. So first we'll go to Matthew 
28, verses 18 and then 20. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. How much authority? All of it? Is he with you? How often? Always? You're going to make it through 2020 and beyond. You're going to make it. You're going to be with your king. Or Matthew eleven twenty-eight. 28. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Feel weary, heavy laden, burdens weighing down on you? Just take him up on his invitation. Walk with him. Go to him in his word and prayer. Gather with other believers. Call them on the phone. Do a Zoom call. Do whatever you're comfortable doing and say, let's talk about Jesus together. Let's remember Jesus together. Or John 14, 3. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am you may be also. The theme through 1 Peter is this is not your home. As long as you think this is your home, you're going to be full of unrest. But Jesus is preparing your eternal home with him. He will come again. This life is short. He is reigning. He has purchased you. He will bring you home. It is worth following him. It is worth following him and filling this place with the beauty of our king who has all the power, who promises to be with us, who promises to give us rest, who promises to bring us home. So bring him your sin and bring him your shame and bring him your suffering and bring him your fears and bring him your loss and see, I need you. I can't do this on my own, but I know you paid for my sins. I know the devil has no control over me. I know that you ascended to your throne. I know that you're reigning. You promised to be with me. Be with me. I need you. Bring it to him. Draw near to God. He'll draw near to you. That's a promise. Will you set your mind on things above? Will you bring your worry to the word? Will you bring your sadness to your Savior? Jesus atoned for your sin Jesus rose again over death. Jesus was victorious over all sinful humans and demonic forces, and Jesus is reigning now. Rest in him today. Let's pray. So God, because of Jesus, we come boldly to your throne And we ask now for grace and mercy and well-timed help. I I don't know the needs in this room perfectly, but you do. So I'm pleading with you, like we did at the beginning of the sermon, to run us over with grace by your Holy Spirit, to convict and comfort, to heal whatever needs to be healed, to repent from whatever needs to be repented of, and to come to you again afresh, knowing that you have paid for our sins, you have rose from the grave, and you are reigning even now. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. 
Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.